concluded uh, Opium War 1, and we're picking up the story uh, right away, uh, actually, with um, Opium War 2 and the Taiping Rebellion, which it only makes sense to handle together, as you will see, dear listeners. Dave Power, do you want to start us off? <laughs> sure. Uh, I think we mentioned last episode the major, imp- one of the most major impacts of the Opium War was the damage that it did to the prestige of the Qing dynasty. There's, uh, historians like to talk about cycles, and they're easy to identify when it comes to the rise and fall of Chinese dynasties. Because the emperor is uh, blessed at the beginning of his reign with the mandate of heaven, it's a concept that's somewhat akin to the uh, divine right of kings that we talked about in earlier episodes about absolutism and enlightened despotism, but it really seems to stand out in Chinese history because there comes a time when the people begin to believe that the dynasty has lost the mandate of heaven because of the signs that are there for everyone to see, natural disasters, uh, economic problems, and and a humiliating defeat like this one which seem to suggest that this dynasty is going to fall and maybe we should just give it a push uh, to help the process along. And that leads to uh, an increase in the number of you know, runaway peasants, uh, banditry in the countryside, and the formation of these secret societies that are just so omnipresent in Chinese history. They're, they're everywhere all the time. And then, of course, the formation of self-defense units because you no longer trust the authorities to protect you, you have to protect yourself and, you know, join one of these groups. So yeah, the mandate of heaven, it's interesting. I was reading a, a book um, by Wang Gongwu, uh, who's like a, I guess he's Chinese uh, diaspora, but based in Singapore, historian. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about it. He said he was talking about a little bit later, like the Chinese, the Qing dynasty's fall in 1912. And he said, just exact, almost exactly what you said. He said, you know, it it created the fear that this could be the end of a civilization that had been so dependent on the centralized Confucian state. In that framework, there loomed the shadow of the mandate of heaven, Tianming, and the institutional baggage that conferred legitimacy to the very idea of China. Even the call for revolution, Geming, carried an ambiguous message. Interesting. Um. But, you know, this these ideas of uh, China and theories of what was going on in China are um, have some um, momentous consequences in terms of the way the imperialists are talking about it. So they've fought an opium war. They've forced these une- this unequal treaty on China. But the back in Britain, there's a debate between people who want to be neutral and people who want to intervene on one or another side of what is going to become uh, a, a, you know, a civil war, the biggest civil war in history, I think, up until that date. Um, so, uh, you know, so this goes back um, to the 18th, uh, 18th century. So Montesquieu um, wrote about despotism you know, one of these French philosophes of the Enlightenment. And his complaint about Oriental despotism was that they didn't have um, the check on 
the royal power that the aristocracy in France represented. So, you know, don't get it twisted. These guys are not uh, anti-despotism because they're, uh, you know, democratic or anything necessarily. So it's like, uh, yeah, it's exactly like you said again, like absolutism versus constitutional monarchy. It's a question of the power of the aristocracy versus the, the crown. Um, but then there's there's another one of the um, like the predecessors of uh, economics, classical economics uh, in France were called physiocrats, and they're called physiocrats. Did we talk about them at all, Dave? Uh, probably not. But that would just follow with my usual trend of avoiding economics. <laughs> we're gonna go deep. We're gonna have one before uh, the series ends. We're gonna go d- real deep. Um, but so physiocrats. Uh, you know, they're called that because they were really into calculating like the soil, you know, the the amount of productivity that you can get from the soil and, you know, really interested in physical quantities of stuff as opposed to something you can touch. And yeah, yeah. Not the mystical money stuff that goes on today, for example. Um, So there's a physio, a famous physiocrat, Kesney, who wrote in 1767, um, a book about despotism in China. And uh, he was saying that as a good thing. <laughs> he was like, they've got despotism in China and that's what we should do too. Uh, and then the cyclical rebellion theory, um, it also was known or at least uh, believed uh, it was popular in Europe from this time. Uh, it, there was a British consul uh, to China named Thomas Taylor Meadows, and he had this belief in the cyclical rebellion, and he wrote a book called The Chinese and Their Rebellions. And so, as we'll see, he was um, one of these advocates for neutrality because he believed that what was going on in the Taiping Rebellion was uh, part of this cycle, and uh, so he didn't want any interference in it. Huh. Like a Star Trek yeah. <laughs> prime <Yeah>. directive <laughs> kind of All right, so here we are. 1846, there's been a 14-year truce in the Opium War, and opium is devastating China. The reparations payments are devastating China. Um, They're collecting anything they can to pay the imperialists back for the privilege of (laughs) plundering and pillaging them in the Opium War. Um, And remember, like the whole revenue system that the British imposed on India 100 years before, well, 90 years before at this point, um, was also uh, kind of the fast road to famine. So in a lot of ways, this is the model. It's the conscious model. Um, You know, people are are making this kind of claim, like we can we could do to China what we've done to India uh, and Burma and, and, you know, other places in in Asia. Um, And uh, and some of these processes are precisely what are what are going on so the like you were saying about the legitimacy uh they also lose legitimacy through corruption and because of their desperation for revenue they start doing things um like selling bureaucratic officers because and you remember like in, if you're talking about legitimacy uh, the mandate of heaven, you're also talking about the integrity of the exam system, right? The integrity of their bureaucracy. So once they start tampering with the integrity of their bureaucracy because of uh, revenue reasons, then their their legitimacy is going down the toilet as well. There are also natural disasters, like you said, which lead now to famine in ways they wouldn't have led to famine 
um, before. The Qing Dynasty, by the way, if you look in uh, the book Late Victorian Holocaust, you remember me passing you that one 15 years ago? And you were like, well, this is pretty grim. <laughs> uh, he was... Uh, the Mike Davis cites... Um, some researchers who uh, look at the records and basically before this period, Qing China devoted about 10% of their revenue to food security. So, and that was apparently like totally unprecedented in history up until that time. So they were really, really good at preventing famine up until this point. And once that system is broken, they um, famines are really, and famine is a major killer during this Taiping civil war as well, as we'll see. Um, so they are trying to reform their military. Okay, so this is a, you're going to talk about Japan uh, in the next episode, but they're, the Chinese are aware. They're very aware from the start that the disparity between weaponry um, is a big reason why the opium war went the way that it did. Uh, but um, without you know, as the later Marxist writers uh, would argue, like Mao and, you know, Maoists and, and other Marxists in China, they argue that you can't really reform military technology without reforming society and the state, right? So Hu Sheng believed, uh, in 1955, in the book Imperialism and Chinese Politics, he wrote... All plans for the development of industry and the establishment of a modern defense force on the basis of rotten autocracy and bureaucracy were nothing but a house of cards. So um, he criticizes one of the reformers' efforts um, in 1865 to 7, um, Li Hong Chong, uh, and he said all they did was open up a market for foreign munitions merchants. Um, and then, you know, later on, the imperialists would come and help them suppress the Taiping and Nian rebellions. Um, so that that's, you know, that's bad on the Chinese side. Uh, there's also some bad news for the imperialists, <laughs> which is um, Marx notes that, you know, the British fought this, uh, this opium war uh, to force China's markets open. And the Chinese are still not buying their stuff the way they want <laughs> so despite all their efforts you know you you fight a war you force people to accept your drugs um and they're still not buying their manufacturers they're still not interested in the in the manufactured textiles and the the british have a glut um there's another thing going on another story which i i considered doing as a whole episode but i'm just going to do as an interlude here mm-hmm. And that is uh, the the so called coolies. So yeah, we could have done this episode five or six episodes ago. Yeah, exactly. But it, they become a it's quite a story in this uh, in this context. So it's it's a it's an interlude. So after the abolition of slavery, um, by pure coincidence, uh, there starts a trade in coolies. Um, coolies being late sort of they're not slaves but they're some kind of unfree laborer that is moved around um, using the same cages um, and ships uh, and doing the same kinds of jobs in the Caribbean mainly uh, but also elsewhere the west coast of the U.S. Um, and uh, even parts of Latin America like Peru 
so there's an interesting book, again, Dan Freeman Malloy mentioned to me by Lisa Lowe, The Intimacies of Four Continent, Continents, 2015. And she says, uh, the importation of Chinese workers began in earnest in 1834 with movement to the West Indies reaching its peak between 1853 and 1866. By 1837, the colonial office sought to address the post-emancipation demands for labor on West Indian sugar plantations with the additional recruitment of indentured workers from colonial India. And by the 1870s, the indentured workers on the West Indian plantations were overwhelmingly South Asian. Uh, you guys have all heard a lot about Frederick Douglass um, or Frederick Douglass. And in 1871, he made a speech where he said, the rights of the coolie in California, in Peru, in Jamaica, in Trinidad, and on board the vessels bearing them to these countries are scarcely more guarded than those than were those of the Negro slaves brought to our shores a century ago. So he was very aware of what was going on with the coolies. You may have heard of the term to be Shanghaied. <laughs> so uh, to be Shanghaied uh, basically means to be uh, kidnapped and drugged and put on one of these um, coolie slash slave ships. Um, some of these ships had 50% mortality rates that, that are going to the Caribbean, California. The first coolies land in Cuba. But like I said, it's throughout the Caribbean. Um, one of the uh, one of these, there's a letter from one of these colonials to another to the foreign secretary. And uh, he writes uh the, about the coolies, the iniquities scarcely exceeding those practiced on the African coast and on the African Middle Passage have not been wanting. The jails of, em of China emptied to supply labor to British colonies, hundreds gathered together in barracoons, stripped naked and stamped and or painted with the letter C for California, P for Peru or S Sandwich Islands on their breasts, according to destination. He mentioned barracoons. A barracoon is, of course, a cage. And you may have heard like the racist um, epithet of calling someone a coon. Um, I actually thought that had something to do with raccoons, but in fact, it has to do with these cages. Um, so from the point of view of the opium trade, though, <laughs> this is a problem, Dave. So Bad one... Bad for business. One of these, uh, Jardine Matheson, the biggest uh, drug dealer in uh, Canton, he writes, The irregular and fraudulent shipment of coolies might jeopardize the immense interests of both British and Anglo-Indians involved in the opium trade, giving more than three million sterling of revenue to India. He's trying to say, guys, ramp down the kidnapping. It's bad for our drug dealing. You know... Uh... <laughs> The comparisons to the slave trade are are apt, but when it comes to how you Shanghaiing, how you acquire mm -hmm. these workers, it has more to do with the fine, time honored tradition of how the British raise their navy. Impressment, yeah. Press gangs, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Of course, once you have them, uh, rather than, you know, read them the riot act and tell them they're now in the navy, uh, now you treat them like slaves. Um, the, uh, the, the book Adam Hosschild, who wrote the you know the most famous book about King Leopold in the Congo, King Leopold's Ghost. He also wrote a book about like basically like the white abolitionists for the most part, uh, "Bury the Chains." It was called, and he said that a lot of their uh, literature or whatever kind of 
tried to get people to empathize with slaves on the basis of that whole impressment regime. They were like, you know, you guys know that you can be snatched up, <laughs> you know, and put on a ship. But imagine if you were snatched up and put on a ship and turned into a slave. Kind of thing. Mm. Um, so, you know, we don't abolish the coolie trade. We just regulate it. Right. Um, so in 1855, there's the Chinese Passenger Act um, to regulate the coolie trade. Uh, certain rights for coolies. I would. I don't know about rights, but you know, some kind of like care and handling kind of type rights. Um, and in 1860, uh, we'll see um, during the the Second Opium War, the British recruit uh, a group called the Canton Coolie Corps, uh, and they put hats on them that are emblazoned trip with a triple C for Canton Coolie Corps. Wow. As far as Indian coolies go. Um, that's also happening, a parallel process, um, indentured slavery with eight-year contracts, and it's kind of like a token pay and food ration. The food ration is important because in both cases, a lot, sometimes if they do, if they sign up willingly, they're signing up because they're trying to avoid a famine. Um, so it's, yeah, I mean, there's something going on with uh, this whole system and process and the industrial revolution in the sense that, you know, the earlier industrial revolution in England was like um, land uh, enclosures, right? You throw people off their land and they turn into this kind of surplus industrial worker. And similarly, now in, in India and China, they're creating these famines by taking the surplus food as revenue, uh, the countryside peasants become a surplus population and they start fleeing to be this uh, mobile labor force uh, to replace the slavery. <clears throat> so that is what is going on with coolies. Um, and that is why uh, you have gr huge numbers of, you know, in relative terms anyway, of Indian and Chinese origin people in the Caribbean and some, you know, to some extent on the West Coast of, of North America. Mm -hmm. So now that interlude is over. Shall we attend to the rebellion? The Taiping Rebellion. You mentioned before the biggest, certainly the bloodiest civil war in history. And then, of course, there's the arguments about the name. Uh, the Qing Dynasty did not call it the Taiping Rebellion. They refer to it as the period of chaos, or simply the rebellion. Taiping Tianguo, the yeah, the Taiping Heavenly Kingdom movement is what they called themselves. But the authorities often refer to them as the Hong Yang Rebellion, after two of the most famous leaders, which is then leads to another description, the Red Sheep Rebellion. Uh, apparently, Hong Yang sounds something like the words for red sheep. <laughs> and they're occasionally referred to as the long hairs because in an act of defiance, they stopped shaving their heads the way the uh, the Manchu insisted upon. So there's... Oh, I, sorry. The words apparently mean... Tai Ping apparently mean great peace. So Yeah, the heavenly kingdom of great, great peace. Yeah. It's even longer and more complicated than, than right. that. That's how they're referred to in uh, Western sources, for sure. So, 
Yeah. Some was it, a, was it yeah, a civil war? Was it a rebellion? And there are even those who suggest it might have been a revolution. Yeah, I'll I'll uh, I'll tell you the sources that I'll tell you about the sources that think that and why. Um, a little bit later. But um, so it's thought of as the most destructive civil war in the history of humanity. So the figures are mind boggling. So we're talking about estimates of 20 to 30 million people who died over this 10 year period. And some estimates are even higher. So remember, um, I gave you the high estimate uh, from Amaresh Mishra of 10 million people who died in the several years of suppressing the uh, Indian uh, rebellion of 1857. So this is twice or maybe three times that big. So the numbers of people that are dying in Asia in this period are, again, like just unbelievable. Um, well, and it's more, it's more than World War I. It's more than World War I. So it's yeah. the biggest thing since World War, until World War II. Yeah. Whew. Um, so with casualties this high, it's always, um, it's not just battlefield deaths or even uh, massacres after deaths. It's the collapse of the whole agricultural system uh, and, and also in cities to the degree that it's urbanized, it's plagues, cholera, typhoid, um, you know, those are both major uh, killers in this um, in this war. So yeah. you've got to like, you know, this is also true in World War Two, by the way. As oh yeah, <laughs> so it's it's just it's really really hard to imagine. And I that was one of the things that I was trying to understand when I was reading it. I was just like, how how did this? How do numbers that like this arise? And it's basically like what it looks like is like a depopulated countryside start people starving people dying of plagues you know people moving around in numbers and places they've never moved before yeah um yeah and i mentioned how uh you know it, there's like the the longer term issue of revenue being creamed off to uh and how devastating that is to to trying to develop an economy or offer famine relief or whatever. But there's also, if a civil war starts and you're a government like the Qing dynasty uh, trying to suppress it, having cash um, flow problems is a huge, huge problem. So that's exactly the situation that happens when this Taiping rebellion starts is um, the government, uh, which you know has crushed many incipient rebel rebellions uh, over its over its hundred plus years so far yeah uh can't even get the money together to do it this time no and their their uh, popular support has uh declined dramatically people just aren't willing to fight for the yeah. Qing dynasty anymore yeah at least not for the moment so the story of the Taiping Rebellion begins with a, a really fascinating individual, uh, Hong Sushan, uh, born in 1814 in Canton. He apparently showed some promise, and the family made financial sacrifices so that he could be educated. And this is happening all over China for centuries. If you can get one, one <laughs> uh, son into the imperial civil service, 
you know, the whole family is golden uh, thereafter. So they will save for generations. They will uh, invest heavily in the education of, you know, the golden child like this. They were, uh, his family were of the Hakka ethnicity. And I have to admit, I'm not sure how significant that is. Uh, there was some uh, ethnic conflict and, and maybe people who were Hakka, you know, clung together a little more. So there's kind of a family network uh, at play here as well, which I'll come to again later on. So Hong Zushan studied, uh, got his education, took the Imperial Civil Service exams, uh, and failed. This is no great disgrace. I think you pointed it out uh, earlier that the success rate was, um, <laughs> well, l- less than 1%. Yeah, you and and there's multiple rounds, right? So it's like yes. there's a there's a local round where if you pass, you could get a, lo- a job as a local bureaucrat, but then you can take the next round. And if you are in the top one percent of the top one percent of the top one percent, like there's, I think there's five rounds to get all the way to the top. Yeah, and so. and failure doesn't mean that you're unemployable. In fact, there are plenty of jobs open to you, you know, just because you're educated enough to even attempt the exams. Uh, in 1836, at the age of 22, he tried again, uh, failed again, but then he met or heard an American Protestant missionary, Edwin Stevens, uh, preaching about Christianity, and he received a set of pamphlets which had been translated into Chinese. They consisted of excerpts from the Bible, uh, homilies, and, you know missionary tracts he didn't give them a thorough study at the time but but he had them so he tried his exams a third time and failed again this third failure though seems to have thrown him for a loop he had i guess the equivalent of a nervous breakdown his family were uh, afraid for his life he was delirious for days and in his delirium He had some dreams, he had some visions, and in his vision, he visited heaven, where he discovered that he had a a heavenly or a celestial family. He had a father in heaven. He had an elder brother and a sister-in-law. He had a wife and a son. And this is going to be important Uh, later on because he came eventually to believe that his celestial family well his father was God the father his elder brother was Jesus Christ Uh, apparently Jesus got married because he had a Hong had a sister-in-law and well Dave this was all documented in the uh, historical record uh, known as the Da Vinci Code so um... (laughs) Okay, yeah. which I never bothered to read. So, anyway, um, we can talk about the Da Vinci Code and the plagiarism another time. I read the more original source. <laughs> Series three? No, Holy Blood, Holy Grail. <laughs> no, I know. I mean, when we'd, we'd get around to it, probably. Oh, in, uh, gosh, yeah. Probably 20, 2023, 24. Okay, don't get started. Um. Yeah, so basically Hong Sushan came to the conclusion that he was the younger brother of Jesus Christ. Uh, He seems to have kept that to himself for a little while. 
he became a teacher and in 1843 took a fourth crack at the exams and failed again. Round about this time, he began to study the Christian pamphlets that he'd gotten from that American missionary, and he was trying to interpret his dreams and his visions. So Heavenly Father, uh, his father, God, was unhappy that men were worshipping demons. Uh, also, God was unhappy that Confucius had led them astray, that uh, they had suppressed the original religion of China, which Hong believed was Christianity. Uh, it had been subverted and, and suppressed by this Confucian ethic and by the early dynasties. So he, uh, he started preaching. He began writing his own religious tracts, and he began preaching to, well, his, among his first and earliest converts were uh, some of his relatives who had also failed the civil service exams. He destroyed all of the Buddhist and Confucian statues and books uh, in his house, and several of his relatives followed his leadership, which reminds me of the, uh, the the late Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, when iconoclasm became a huge movement, right? You had uh, Christianity facing a, a very energetic uh, Islam on the rise, and the iconoclast pointed out that, you know, the, the, uh, the Muslims don't have any graven images, and we have too many, so we have to be a lean, mean, fighting religious machine, and we have to destroy all of these graven images. So it's kind of a powerful uh, thing to offer people, and especially in this time, right? Right. Uh, this is 1847 when he starts destroying the images. So one of his relatives, Feng Yushan, uh, joined by a few others, they decided to travel and preach. Uh, Hong Sushan met another American missionary, a Southern Baptist, Reverend Issachar Jacox Roberts. He studied translations of the Old and New Testaments. Apparently, Roberts refused to baptize Hong. Uh, the, the story behind this is some of the other converts tricked Hong into asking Roberts for money. And that was enough to annoy the reverend, and he refused to baptize his student. So uh, he left, uh, was robbed by bandits, and rejoined his kinsman Feng, who had founded the Society of God Worshippers. This apparently got Feng arrested, so Hong left again. And... While these guys were gone, two new leaders of, of the little movement emerged. Uh, Yang Zhuqing. Yeah, Zhuqing, I'd say, probably, and Xiao yeah, Chaogui. Yeah. So these two fellows uh, claimed that they spoke directly to members of the heavenly family. Uh, they would go into trances and then come out of them and then communicate what members of the celestial family had said to them. Apparently, Yang spoke to God the Father regularly, and Zhao uh, had a personal uh, line with uh, Jesus Christ. 
1848, when Hong and Feng returned, uh, here's these two guys leading, I, I guess, what should be their movement. So they did a little investigation, and uh, they declared that Yang and Shao's claims were genuine. So now Hong began to preach as well. Apparently, he did it in the Southern Baptist tent revival style. Uh, oh, he was wow. Re- How did that go over in China? Pretty well. Hey, pretty pretty hot. <laughs> hey, it was, it was different, right? Um, he was translating uh, rather adapting uh, the Bible. He made some, uh, I guess you could call them minor changes. Editorial changes? Yeah, yeah. So he argued that Christianity was the authentic religion of China, that it existed before Confucius. Uh, He argued that the genders should be equal, so sexual equality. However, they should also be segregated, which is an interesting approach. Um, his followers were encouraged to contribute all of their wealth into a communal treasury. And you can see there that he will gain a bit of a reputation with later Marxist historians as a proto-communist, an early form of communism. So what's the appeal? How is this group getting followers? It sounds a little, on the surface, it sounds a little crazy. But then again, think of it as uh, a utopian society, maybe as a form of uh, protection, one of these uh, self-protection groups band together in troubled times. There were certainly bandits uh, everywhere. And then lots of rival missionaries. So you can have uh, debates and you can attack your rivals and you know claim that they're mistaken and so on. By 1848-9, largely under Feng's leadership, they'd gathered about 2,000 converts in Guangxi province. So why would the authorities allow these people to preach their strange ideas? Well, they had more pressing concerns. You mentioned the the economic problems. Uh, We've mentioned the bandits. There were pirates on the rivers. Um... Uh, ethnic conflicts. Sometimes local villages and and local clans, rather than turning to the authorities for protection, they would band together or even flee and join Hong's movement. So his uh, following really benefited from all of the troubles around there. As, you know, villages clashed and the pirates clashed with the bandits and the bandits with the villages and, you know, on and on and on. Somehow by 1850, Hong had over 10,000 followers. Some some suggest maybe even 30,000 followers. Now the authorities become alarmed. That's a rather large group. So they ordered uh, these people to disperse and a local governor sent a force to attack them. And the Taiping, I'm just going to call them the Taiping for reasons of clarity, Uh, the Taiping routed this force, defeated them. In 1851, the government massed a larger attack on them. By this time, their headquarters was in the town of Jintian. They won another victory, and they beheaded the Manchu commander. So now this is no longer a religious 
solely a religious group or a utopian society. This is now a an anti-Qing rebellion. rebellion. So a couple of notes. One is you remember Lin Zexu from uh, yes. the Opium War. He was called out of retirement at age 67 to go and deal with the rebels, but he never made it. In 1850, he, he answered the call. He was on his way, but he died on the way. That um, would have been an interesting conversation. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Because they know Canton, too. They probably... Anyway, um, the 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 battle at Jintian, I, I actually was reading about this um, as well. There were... Uh, the, that was a big battle. Apparently, there were 10,000 rebels, uh, and they were armed with pikes and halberds, and the women were fighting alongside the men. Yes, this is part of the reason for their success is the women apparently fought really, really hard. And and if you're a you know, a woman who's unhappy with her lot, you know, if you if you can run off and join these people, you're yeah. gonna have equality. Um so they cut off their ponytails, right? Oh. Um they um and Hong speaking of the uh you know the relations between women and men the leader actually forbids sexual intercourse for Taiping rebels. That wasn't, yeah, that wasn't as popular. Uh, especially since he didn't forbid it for himself. Well, no, no. <laughs> um, so you were also just a couple of notes. Um, the there's a con, there's a connection between the Taiping and the triads. Uh, the triads back then being a secret society to restore the Ming Dynasty. Um, and also do banditry. So the idea was, um, which the Taiping adopted, was that the Manchu were actually, or the Qing were actually interlopers. They were, you know, they were not really Chinese, um, you know, they're foreign imposition. Um, and the other the other elements that made them stand out but among other bandits was they had a battle cry, which was plunder the rich to relieve the poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they also had uh, an anti-drug kind of program. Right. So there is a program there, you know, I don't know if it was the 12 steps per se, but there was a program for addicts um, recovering from opium addiction. There's also um, strict uh, rules against alcohol, gambling, tobacco, prostitution, concubinage, the coolie trade and slavery. So you can see how this is the kind of thing that's very appealing in a time of chaos and corruption. Yeah, it's more morally upright, uh, yeah. strict rules. You know, pretty pretty clear rules to follow. Yeah, I didn't mention earlier when he was uh, reviewing and and rewriting the Bible, he yeah. removed references to the Israelites drinking wine. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, in the context of the opium addiction yes. crisis, right? It makes a lot of sense to make those kinds of edits. Um, so Hu Sheng, uh, the 1955 book I mentioned before, he says, the Taiping uprising represented the highest achievement that a purely peasant war in a feudal era could possibly attain. But during their rule, the Taipings revealed their own weaknesses, which made it impossible for them to establish a stable government. And we'll talk about, we'll kind of outline why that is. But I just wanted to mention that you know, the later, again, the later kind of Marxist analysts uh, concluded that this was, you know, the limitations of what um, 
what you can do without, I guess, a, you know, a class-based program, right? Or a, a more scientific program. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing, 1850, uh, the, the emperor, the Qing emperor dies, the Daoguang emperor. So his successor is Xian Feng, who is 19 years old at this time. And who's obsessed with a very important character named Xi Shi, uh, one of the concubines who is elevated to the Empress of the Western Palace when she has an heir, which she does at that, you know, fairly quickly. So you'll hear a lot more about Xi Shi in the oh, coming yes. hours. Yeah. So, so emboldened by their their big victory, uh, Hong declares the foundation of the heavenly kingdom of transcendent peace. So this yeah. is Taiping Tianquo, and that's where the, the name comes from. And by fall of 1850, he has 1 million adherents. I'm, you know, I, I'm not so sure about the numbers anymore. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I read that, that they were surrounded by the authorities and that they were outnumbered 10 to 1. Is that just, you know, propaganda yeah. or... Uh, it could be big numbers and big numbers, right? <laughs> like, yeah, uh, uh, one million adherents doesn't mean one million fighters. I guess. No, no, it doesn't. One, one big. But then to be outnumbered ten to one would mean pretty big armies coming around. But the uh, the authorities recruited the uh, river pirates to keep Hong and his movement locked in place. But the Taiping responded by uh, breaking out, fighting their way out. Uh, they captured uh, a major town, Yongan. And here they found, uh, well, they found support from local landowners. These were people who were hostile to the Qing dynasty and supported this movement. And not everything about the movement, right? If you were uh, a married man and you joined the movement, being segregated from your wife might not have been one of your highest hopes, but in any case, they spent uh, three months there. Another imperial army came to attack them. They, the Taiping quickly ran out of gunpowder, so they cut their way out with swords and pikes and so on. Uh, somehow they managed to besiege the city of Guilin. Uh, they were unable to take it. This is 1852 now. They moved... Uh, north towards Hunan province where they ran into a militia force. This was some kind of elite special militia force that uh, landowners had created to basically fight peasant rebellions, which were so, you know, everywhere at this time. And the Taiping were defeated. They lost uh, 20% of their fighters and were forced to retreat. So their story is not one of uninterrupted rise. Right. Oh, no, they have their ups and downs for sure. <laughs> they certainly do. Uh, so there's a division where uh, Hong Shu Chuan is like um, the kind of organizational and theoretical leader, if you want to say the spiritual leader. <laughs> Remember yeah. Louis Riel rebellion? Um, and then there's uh, one of his leaders as Yang, who who's kind of like, the military commander at this stage. Yeah. Um, Yang, Yang was the guy who uh, spoke directly to God. Right. <laughs> That's what you, you need that in a military commander, I guess. Yeah. Um, 
January 1853, the Taiping reach uh, the town of Wuchang and take it. They massacre the defenders, and they they um they also do some demonstrations, uh, you know, demonstrative executions of moneylenders and corrupt bureaucrats. So always popular with the masses. Yeah, so they're they're here to clean up, right? Just to make a link back to um other episodes this is 1853 to 1856 we're into crimean war time so that while this is happening here the crimean war which is you know not that far um and you know it's far but um you know it's it's out it's in russia you know china has a border with russia and so we're over in that hemisphere anyway um and they arrive in Nanjing in February 1853. They besiege it. They take it after a two-week siege. Um, there's more massacres. Um, yeah, it got pretty nasty. Uh, yeah. Male Manchus were basically slaughtered because they were demons. And females were taken outside the city and burned. Right. So this is now the capital of the Taiping Rebellion for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hong declared it uh, the heavenly capital and renamed it Tianjin. I'm not sure why or, or what that means. They sent some expeditions. Uh, one went north, and that was a complete failure. One went west, partial success. And once he was established in... Uh, Nanjing, this uh, Hong started to get a little strange. Yeah, I mean, you could argue that he was strange from the beginning, but now he's becoming very the life of luxury, right? So he arrives in a litter accompanied by thirty-six women uh, riding horses, and once he goes into the palace, uh, he never leaves the palace again for the next ten years. He is not yeah. seen outside of the palace. And uh, a lot of his generals adopt this lifestyle as well. Um, his harem becomes notorious. Yeah, he when he withdrew, he devoted himself to uh, meditating, dreaming, having visions. And these always led to uh, new edicts or written proclamations. He, he really liked issuing these proclamations. So he reformed the calendar. Uh, he outlawed opium. I mean, they were already pretty much solidly against it, but he made it official. And he forbid polygamy. And yet, he made some exceptions. <laughs> For his top generals, they were allowed 10 concubines. Uh, a later edict raised the number to 11. I'm not sure of the significance of those numbers. Uh, Hong himself, because of his you know, semi-celestial status, was allowed 100 concubines. And the generals, the Taiping generals, uh, began to call themselves Wang, which is king. So they were kings. Mm -hmm. And they took some great, great names, sometimes associated with um, the theater of their military operations, but there's some other, just some absolutely great names. So you had Eastern King, uh, Northern King, the king of heavenly virtue, uh, and my personal favorite, assistant king. Right, and I I read um, I read a book called Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom. Uh, I can't remember the author's name, but Pratt maybe. But um, 
it may depend on translation too because i in that book he talks about the loyal king and the brave king so and mm-hmm. i think those are both are those different from these two are yeah these these are, oh no they had like dozens oh, okay okay so the other thing about 1853 is we should uh we should let listeners know because this is um significant for the linked Chinese of, I mean, the linked history of Chinese and Japanese uh, at this time, because 1853 is also when the American um, Admiral Commodore, I guess, Perry uh, arrives in Japan and basically imposes some kind of uh, deal on them, forces them to open. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I get it. Or I guess spoiler. (laughs) I mean to say, spoiler. So, also 1853, um, the emperor sends uh, Mongolian cavalry against the Taiping because they've arrived 100 miles uh, outside of Beijing. So the Mongolian cavalry are successful. They disperse the Taiping. There's a guerrilla war in the ca- around the capital for a year and a half. Um, so that campaign uh, north... And in 1855, finally, with the remnant of the guerrillas fighting around the capital, um, being captured and beheaded. Uh, Also in 1853, there's a major character uh, in this book, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, uh, who, you know, was really became really important in the war. Um, His name is Zheng Guofan. And he's one of these, uh, you know, got the top score in all five rounds of the exams, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's that guy. Um, and he uh, begins to assemble a force on, you know, what he views as truly Confucian uh, principles. So you talked in the Opium War One episode about the bannermen, the different banners. Yeah. Yeah. So Zheng Guofan is organizing on a totally different basis. He's basically argue, you know, basically organizing uh, based on, you know, you raise local peasants that are under your, you know, that are linked to you by family or patron kind of relationships so that they're accountable to you and you're accountable to them. And he builds the army uh, that way. So by, it takes him a year, but by, uh, yeah, he starts, he starts growing. He has initial defeats, but this is going to be the army that, uh, this is going to be the army that, eventually wins the war against the Taiping. And the other thing about Zhang Guofan is he's obsessed with the game of Go. I don't know if you uh, listeners know the name of Go, but it's sort of like the Asian, the East Asian version of chess. Um, It's based on encirclement. So like you're trying to encircle the other guy's stones while he's trying to encircle you. And that's kind of how they envision the strategy of this um, of this war. So he's trying to encircle the Taiping and they're trying to encircle him. Um, there's a, you know, he loses a series of battles um, initially and tries to commit suicide several times. Um, there, yeah, there's more, there's morale issues with the imperialist armies. Yeah. You know, we, we talked about the, the mandate of heaven. Common people don't have much confidence in, in the emperor's, government yeah and they're certainly not willing to die fighting for it whereas the taiping are incredibly motivated uh, combination of you know re- religious fanaticism and utopian visions and the opposition to the 
Manchu. So one side is really motivated and the other, it's a problem. How do you get people to fight for the dynasty? That's mm. not to say that the Taiping don't have their own problems. They do. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Hong and Yang are now starting to disagree. So Yang is, is running the army, and some of Hong's uh, proclamations that come out from time to time are, uh, to put it mildly, impractical. So <laughs> Yang's now like shaking his head whenever something comes out of Hong's pleasure palace. palace yeah. Actually, I think it's a huge tent. But anyway. Uh, meanwhile, Hong is jealous when Yang relates his conversations with God the Father, because that's Hong's father that he's talking to there. And But then again, he, he already basically <laughs> you know, said that Yang does indeed speak to God, so it's kind of hard to disagree with him now. And both of them have spies on the other guy oh, and there are no. intrigues and there are plots. You could do probably four or five seasons of a Netflix series just with the plots going back and forth between them. But Yang is making enemies. He seems to like flogging people and he's very egalitarian about who he flogs. So one of the people that he flogged was Wei Changhui, who is North King. Oh no. Yeah, and then he flogged, um, oh my gosh, the father-in-law of Yan Prince. Uh, no, sorry, the father-in-law of Yi King, which is Shi Dakai. He's very important mm -hmm. later on. So, you know, when you're flogging people and their relatives, that's not going to make you very popular. Now, he is successful in the military field. In June of 1856, the Taiping defeat the Manchu army surrounding uh, Nanjing and ease the siege. They don't end it, but they ease it considerably. And this seems to have made Yang even bolder. So he wants equal status with Hong. As it is now, when they call out his name, they cry, long live er, for 9,000 years. For Hong, they cry out, long live for 10,000 years. Right. And Yang now wants 10,000 years associated to him. Yeah, ceremony is so important, eh? Like the, yeah. yeah, yeah. And little little things like, uh, yeah, seating arrangements and uh, who goes first in the procession can lead to all sorts of trouble. So Yang is the Eastern King, and he sends North King, a guy he had flogged, um, Yan Prince, who is Qin Rigang, and Yi King, he sends them to separate provinces. And Hong doesn't like having, you know, three of his loyal followers all sent out of the area. He suspects some kinds of, of, of treasonous plot, and he recalls all three of them. Don't assume that just because he's hanging out in the pleasure palace with a hundred concubines that he's, um, you know, he's not, not well paying informed. attention. Yeah. 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 So this is the Tianjing incident, which is pretty important in the history of the Taiping. Personally, I think it would make a great movie. Um, be a bit of a tragic bummer ending though, wouldn't it? Well, not I necessarily. Guess. <laughs> Depends on whose perspective you take. Yeah. So, 
uh, Hong suspects treason and he recalls his three generals. So North King and Yan Prince arrive first and they have a meeting with Hong and his allies, whoever they are, and they decide to act right away before Yi King comes back. I don't know what's delaying him, but Shidakai is apparently on his way. He's just not there yet. So the the conspirators gather their forces and they storm Yang's palace. Mm-hmm. They kill him and then they slaughter his entire family and his supporters. Which I read in Platt that it's like 6,000 followers. Well, yeah, they're also killing his most loyal soldiers. Yeah, for sure. And I don't know to what extent they visit the sins of the father on the sons, but it seems like the entire family is kind of traditional. So uh, Yang and his 6,000 followers are dead, but there's a huge army out there that are just going to hear that the general in command and his and 6,000 others were massacred. How do you, how do you explain this? How do you spin this? So Hong cooks up uh, a little plot uh, and pretends to arrest North King and Yan Prince and accuse them of the murder of Yang. So Yang's followers, these are the, the, the 6,000. This is how they got rid of these 6,000 people. They're invited to watch the punishment of North King and Yan Prince who are going to be beaten. So there's this pretend beating being uh, administered and 6,000 people are brought into an enclosed area to witness it. And then once they're in that enclosed area, they can be trapped and massacred. That's not the end of the killing. The killing goes on for three months and there are something like 26 or 29,000 people who are murdered. Uh, This is the beginning of the fraying of the movement. Mm -hmm. Now, Shidakai, he's uh, the Yi king. Uh, He arrives and he's a little aghast at what's been going on. He blames North King for the excessive bloodshed. North King retaliates by suggesting that Shidakai is a traitor. So she flees Mm. the same day as he arrived. I guess he smelled which way the wind was blowing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that night, North King and Yan Prince murder Shidakai's family and immediate followers. Mm. So she goes back to the army and gathers 100,000 men. So now you have the the prospect of civil war between factions of the Taiping. Uh, He's not going to step down. He demands the heads of of both North King and Yan Prince, who begin plotting to imprison Hong so that they can dictate the future proclamations. So Hong has his bodyguards kill North King and then tricks Yan Prince into coming uh, to a private meeting and has him killed as well. Wow. Yeah. Uh, afterwards, Hong declares an amnesty for Yang. Yeah, I know they murdered him, but the amnesty is like posthumous. On his name, yeah. Yeah, and then his death is described as his ascension into heaven. So all of this together is the Tianjin incident, and you can see why popular support for the Taiping begins to decline. Yeah, what kind of what kind of show are you running here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And now we're back 
to where we were before. Instead of being jealous of Yang, Hang is now, or sorry, Hong is now unhappy with the popularity of Shi Dekai, who's leading the army, and tries to undermine him. He's afraid that Shi Dekai will launch a coup of his own. So from here on in, Taiping morale is really shaken, and they start losing battles hmm. to imperial forces, which I, I think they, they've given up their greatest advantage, the, uh, the morale, the confidence. Yeah, that invincibility that you're just growing and growing. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, let's uh, let me end this uh, hour with uh, with a little story of uh, uh, of something that happened between the foreigners uh, and the uh, government officials in 1856 um, in February. Uh, there's a priest, Abbe Auguste Chapdelaine, in Xilin in Guangxi, uh, which is also a center of the Taiping Rebellion. He's arrested by the government. Um, so it, tur- you know, it turns out even with the unequal treaties being uh, the Treaty of Nanjing, I guess, which was between uh, Britain anyway, right? Uh, Britain and, and the, and the government, the Chinese Britain, China. Uh, the French are not allowed to run mission missions, foreign missions in uh, in interior China. So he um, he's beheaded. Uh, the French uh, French propaganda says that he was also eaten afterwards. Yeah, because that's something they do. Right? <laughs> but you know, they're tr- you could see how they're trying to do that. They're trying to make. Uh, they're trying to you know, make the most out of this incident, right? Um, so there's a Chinese official, another another one of these unflappable uh, commissioners <laughs> that gets in trouble with the imperialists uh, or vice versa. Um, so he tells the French representative, well, look, you know, Chapdelaine dressed and spoke like a Chinese. Nobody thought he was French. Um, so uh, this is uh, a bit of an incident. And there's another incident that is to follow. Well, there are, there are uh, quite a few... Well, not just missionaries. My gosh, there's a whole trail of Europeans yeah. traveling to meet the Taiping. Right. They're not, they're not going to enforce the imperial rules about right. missionaries. Yes. They're also attracted when they hear that the Taiping are Christian. Yeah. Of course, once you get close, and there are a couple who actually get to speak to Hong and realize, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have a I have a theory about that too. I I actually think it was the geopolitics driving, you know, their definition of what Christian was. So I think they would have oh, yeah, accepted yeah. it. Weird. Yeah, yeah. Well, but I find it akin to the the Cold War stuff, right? Yeah, sure. They're anti communist. All right, yeah. they must be our friends then. <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, we'll we'll resume with um, with Opium War Two and the incidents.